is day four of the 2015 Rocky Mountain Bible School. Our teacher is Brother Richard Morgan on the subject of Demons and the Superstitious Mind. The subtitle for today is Paul's Sightseeing Tour of Athens. Brother Richard. Good morning once again, brothers and sisters. We come now to looking a little bit further along in the New Testament as far as biblical teaching on the subject of demons. Yesterday we looked at the gospel records and how there was a lot of accommodation of language and we saw how each of the the demon miracles would be a parable of idolatry and, and casting idolatry out. Now we come to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17. And the Apostle Paul, on his preaching mission throughout Europe, had gone on ahead of his other companions. And he was waiting for them in the city of Athens. And while there, he thought he'd do a little bit of sightseeing. And he comes across a lot of idolatry. And that's what he's going to deal with. And we're going to see it's a very good passage for dealing with those who perhaps don't have a a biblical background, but have a very superstitious and uh, idolatrous belief. And how does Paul deal with that? How does Paul deal with these Athenians who don't have a a Jewish background? What does he say to them? And we're going to find, I hope, rather interesting. And first of all, I want us to establish this, this point again. We've looked at this a couple of times before, how the Apostle Paul when writing to the Corinthians concerning demons, uses his, really his stock passage from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy chapter 32, which we've looked at before. So when he says to the Corinthians about what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, he's making a direct reference to Deuteronomy 32, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods. And what we're going to find in Acts chapter 17 is that This is the passage that Paul has in mind. This is going to be the basis of what he's going to say to the Athenians. So let's open our Bibles at at Acts chapter 17 and trace our way through the arguments that Paul makes. So here in Acts chapter 17, first of all, we'll, we'll go in here at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, waiting for his companions who were on their way at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And when we look at uh, ancient Athens, that's exactly what it was like. This is actually uh, modern-day Athens over here. This is the Areopagus, Mars Hill, where Paul makes his speech that we're going to look at. And this is a an artist's idea of what Athens might have looked like with with statues um, all over the place. And this is what Athens was like. Every single place, every street corner, there was an idol. And this affected Paul to such an extent that it says there in verse 16 that his spirit was provoked within him. 
There's a neat little Bible echo there to Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's worthwhile keeping a, a marker both in Acts 17 and Deuteronomy 32. And we've seen that that attitude that Paul had, his spirit provoked within him, it's really the same attitude that God had to those who worshipped idols and demons in Old Testament times. So Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 16 says that they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. And Paul is similarly provoked by what he sees uh, in Athens. And the Greek gods, the, the Greeks, sorry, had gods for absolutely everything. Apart from the, the famous Olympian gods like Apollo and, and Zeus, there were many of these small gods, as they were termed, like Nyx, goddess of the night, Glaucus, god of fishermen, Comus, he was a neat god, he was the god of revelry, merrymaking, and festivity. So no doubt he had a lot of followers. That whatever happened in life, there was a God for it. Everything was explained by the Athenians by a God. Either by a big God who had more to do, you know, the God of the, the, whole, the sea or the universe or whatever. But there also there are all these little small gods who were involved in every single aspect of their lives. Now, carrying on in Acts chapter 17, and verse 17. So, he reasoned in the synagogue, as his, uh, his pattern of behavior was, with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace, every day, with those who happened to be there. And then some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul comes across these two groups of philosophers that were famous in ancient Greece, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And it's those two schools of thought that Paul is going to try and tackle in this passage. And they were quite distinct in their philosophies. The Epicureans were a lot like the Sadducees of the Jewish faith. They were... To all intents and purposes, while they believed that the gods existed, really they were atheists because they, they believed that the gods had absolutely nothing to do with mankind. They rejected the idea of theodicy, which is the study of the involvement of God in good and evil. And they said, no, the gods are so far away, they have no involvement in our lives. So effectively, they were atheists. And, and Paul is going to address that Epicurean philosophy. The Stoics were quite different. The Stoics were like the Pharisees, we might say, of the Jewish faith. Very religious folk. They were particularly devoted to Zeus, the, the head god of the Greek religion. And they were maybe more uh, conservative, right-wing, compared with the, the more left-wing, liberal uh, viewpoint of the, the Epicureans. So Paul has to deal with these two opposing schools of thought, and he's going to deal with them throughout his speech. He's going to say things that the Epicureans are going to agree with in contrast to what the Stoics believe, but vice versa, he's going to say things which the Stoics agreed with against the, the Epicureans. So it's, it's a very, very interesting speech indeed. 
Now notice what the Epicureans and Stoics say here in verse 18. What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. I think in the King James it says something like strange gods. Now you might be aware that that word divinities or gods is not the word Elo, uh, sorry, not the word theos here. It's actually the word for demons, daimonia. And this is how the Athenians understood or the, the term they used for their gods. They had their theos gods, the Olympian gods like Zeus and so forth, but they also had these small gods, and a term that they used themselves was daimonia, demons. So this is another good proof passage for showing the connection between demons and gods. Now why, why do they say he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, gods, plural? And it appears that they got a misunderstanding of what Paul was saying. It says at the end of the verse, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And the word resurrection sounds like the name of a goddess, perhaps to, them, to, to, their, to their ears. It's the word Anastasia, which you know, sounds like a name of a person and, and is used as a name of a person in some cultures. And so he was preaching Jesus and Anastasia, strange gods to their ears. What, what, is, he, what is he saying here? So this is perhaps... What was going on here? Paul here is preaching Jesus and Anastasia, and they're saying, well, what are, what are these gods? Now, have a look at the repetition here in verses 19 to 21 of the word new. So verse 19 says, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, that's Mars Hill, that, what we saw on that last photo, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. A little bit like today's world, the, the cult of the new, we sometimes talk about it. People want new stuff all the time. So we have the repetition of this word new, new teaching in verse 19. They want to hear things that are new in verse 21, which uh, has a little Bible echo back again to Deuteronomy chapter 32. I just want to turn back there briefly. It says there in Deuteronomy 32 verse 17, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come newly up. And that's, that was the attitude of mind of the Athenians. They wanted to hear something new. Now, Paul's response to the Athenians is very, very insightful indeed. And he starts off actually rather diplomatic. If you come back and look at verse 22. So, they're up here on the Areopagus on Mars Hill, and Paul has his audience before him. And verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. If you have the King James, it will say you are too superstitious. Well, what does it mean, this word? Well, it means both religious and superstitious, depending on how you hear it. 
So the Epicureans standing there would hear Paul say, you guys are too superstitious. And the Epicureans would be saying, yeah, those Stoics, they're very, very superstitious folk. And the Stoics would be standing there listening to Paul and saying, yeah, we're very religious. Thank you, Paul. So it's a word that means both religious and superstitious. And it's actually a very, very interesting word indeed. It is the word, you know, superstitious. Uh, I'm not sure whether you can read that, but it is the word desdemonesteros. Okay? Another, word to say, another word to say six times quickly. And you can see the word demon right in there. And in this uh, particular lexicon here, it literally means fearing the gods. Okay? The word God being daimonia. So a very, very interesting word indeed. And it has the idea of being religious, fearing the gods, but also has the idea of superstitious, depending on how you hear the word. It's uh, unique in the Bible. There is a related word in Acts chapter 25. If you just actually want to turn to that. It's not the exact same word, but it's a, a related word. It also means literally fear of the gods or fear of demons. If you look in Acts chapter 25 and at verse 19, this is where Paul is before Agrippa. And in verse 19 it says, Rather they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, whom Paul asserted to be alive. So that word religion there is uh, related to this word. It, it means that they have this superstitious uh, fear of the gods. And that's how they describe the Jewish religion. So this is a, a term that was used for religious people or superstitious people in the Greek world of Paul's day. Now, there's a book that was written in, I think, 319 B.C. by a man called Theophrastus. And uh, we're going to have a little look at this. It's a book called The Character Sketches. And what he did in this book is he wrote a series of stereotypical caricatures to describe certain people in Greek society. And it's quite humorous in places. And uh, we've got the table of contents up here. So you can see he chose, you know, there's about 25 or so character sketches that this, this man wrote about people in Greek society. So we have uh, the flatterer, the bore, the, the buffoon, the tactless man, and so on. It's really interesting to read through some of these. And one of them is the superstitious man. So talking about stereotypes in Greek society. And the stereotypical superstitious man, here it is, everyone read that? that that's his character sketch. Oh, I'm sorry. You can, you can read it later. Um, but you'll be able to see here the title of his character sketch. This is the superstitious man. And in fact, if we were to drill down we would find, that's the, the title, see that word? Can you see that? It's a little bit small. 
That is that same word that's used in Acts chapter 17. This is the title of his character sketch, the Desdemona. Okay? Interestingly, Shakespeare used this name in his uh, play, Othello, which has a lot, a lot to do with superstition. There's a very superstitious uh, side to it with, uh, regarding a handkerchief and so on, and he chose the word Desdemona as, as the, the woman there in his play. So what Theophrastus is doing in his character sketch is he's describing the superstitious man as this Desdemona. Right? Same word that's used in Acts chapter 17. And we've actually got, uh, in case you can't read that Greek, uh, for those who don't read the Greek, here it is in English. So I want to read through this because it's quite fascinating. This was the stereotypical superstitious man. And again, depending on how you read this, you can read this as someone who's devoted very religiously to the gods, which the Stoics would have prided themselves on, but the Epicureans would have looked at this as foolish superstition. So look at this and compare it with some of the things that people do today in, in today's superstitious world. So superstition would seem to be a simply cowardice in regard to the supernatural. The superstitious man is one who will wash his hands at a fountain, sprinkle himself on the temple font, put a bit of laurel wreath into his mouth, and so go about the day. If a weasel run across his path, he will not pursue his walk until someone else has traversed the road, like a black cat, you know? Um, or until he has thrown three stones across it, thrown salt across his shoulder. You know, it's, it's very similar to the things people do today. When he sees a serpent in his house, if it be the red snake, he will invoke Sabasius. If the sacred snake, he will straightway place a shrine on the spot. He will pour oil from the flask on the smooth stones at the crossroads as he goes by and will fall on his knees and worship them before he departs. If a mouse gnaws through a meal bag, he will go to the expounder of sacred law and ask what is to be done. And if the answer is give it to a cobbler to stitch up, he will disregard the counsel and go his way and expiate the omen by sacrifice. Crazy. He is apt also to purify his house frequently, alleging that Hecate has been brought into it by spells. And if an owl is startled by him in his walk, he will exclaim, glory be to Athene, before he proceeds. He will not tread upon a tombstone, like don't tread on the cracks when you're walking along, or come near a dead body or a woman defiled by childbirth, saying that it is expedient for him not to be polluted. Also, on the fourth and seventh days of each month, he will order his servants to mull wine and go out and buy myrtle wreaths, frankincense, and smilax. And on coming in, will spend the day in crowning the hermaphrodite hermaphrodites. When he has done, uh, sorry, when he has seen a vision, he will go to the interpreters of dreams, the seers, the augurs, to ask them to what god or goddess he ought to pray. Every month he will repair to the priest of the Orphic Mysteries to partake in their rites, accompanied by his wife, or if she is too busy, by his, <laughs> I love that bit, by his children and their nurse. He would seem, too, to be of those who are scrupulous in sprinkling themselves with seawater, and if ever he observes anyone feasting on the garlic at the crossroads, he will go away, pour water over his head, and summoning the priestesses, bid them carry a squill or a puppy around him for purification. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And if he sees a maniac or an apoplectic man, he will shudder and spit into his bosom. So that was Theophrastus' take on the superstitious man. And you look at that, and you think that's hilarious. But how different is that to how some people, maybe on a smaller scale, some people do stuff like that today. They won't walk under a ladder. They won't jinx their team. They will throw salt over their shoulder. And touch wood, the rest of this talk will go well. You know, that, we, we do that. Every, I, I've seen Christadelphians touch wood. It's, uh, 
people have these little, these little superstitions. So, again, the Stoics would look at that and say, yes, that's, that's good. The Epicureans would mock at it. So, at present, Paul is uh, involving both the Stoics and the Epicureans in what he's talking about. So, let's come back to Acts chapter 17 and verse 23. So, he said in verse 22, you're very religious, superstitious, depending on how you take it. Then verse 23, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I find also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul's going to take advantage, really, of the superstition of the Athenians. Now we can look at this unknown God in a couple of ways. Perhaps this was a catch-all for the Athenians, that just-in-case mentality. So superstitious they were, just in case they miss one of the gods, they have to have the unknown god altar as well. Just as people, just in case they tempt fate, won't walk under a ladder and, and so forth. But also, there's an interesting history behind the unknown god, and it involves this man here, Epimenides. And you know who Epimenides is because Paul quotes him in the book of Titus. So this verse here, uh, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Okay, we know that verse. And Paul there is actually quoting from this guy, Epimenides, who was from Crete. He was a priest of the cult of Zeus. And the story goes like this, that the uh, that Athens was being attacked by pestilence. And after consulting with the oracle of Delphi, the Athenians sent a ship to Crete to ask for the help of this man, Epimenides. And he agreed to help the Athenians. He came to Athens, and he brought some sheep to Mars Hill, as, as you do. He released the sheep and allowed them to go where they pleased. And wherever a sheep lay down, Epimenides had the spot marked so that sacrifices could be made to the unknown local divinity there. Epimenides' remedy worked, and Athens was delivered from its scourge. Thus, from that day onward, visitors to Athens would find altars to unknown gods around the city. So, there was one, obviously, at Mars Hill. A sheep must have laid down there, and they marked the spot as the unknown god. So, kind of an interesting little uh, history behind it. So, Paul takes advantage of this, and he says, I'm going to proclaim to you who this unknown God is. Now, verse 24, notice the emphasis then that Paul makes. We've looked at this before. How the Bible deals with belief in demons is to establish the sovereignty of Yahweh, that he is over all things. And this is exactly the argument that Paul uses. So in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He's emphatic, isn't he? God who made the world, everything in it, Lord of heaven and earth. Just like in Deuteronomy chapter 32, which we looked at earlier in the week, where God declares that I heal, I bring calamity 
I do all of these things. I create good. I create evil. I am sovereign over all things. I am the creator and sustainer of absolutely everything. And really, Paul continues with that theme in the next verse, in verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So all of these little gods that you have were involved in all these little diff different aspects of life. Well, God is over them all. For God, the unknown God I proclaim to you, He is sovereign over everything. He's created all of it. And He is in charge of all things. Then in verse 26, we can see that Paul's mind is back in Deuteronomy 32. So verse 26, And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God didn't just create the heavens and earth, but he created human history as well and the formation of the nations. Now just to look at the language there in verse 26 and turn again to Deuteronomy chapter 32. And you can tell here that this is uh, what Paul has in mind. So Deuteronomy chapter 32 here and verse 7. Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, elders, and they will tell you, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. So there again, God is involved in history the formation of the nations and civilizations. God is sovereign over everything. And that's exactly what Paul's point is in Acts chapter 17. Now it gets really interesting here when we come back to Acts chapter 17 and verses 27 and 28. What Paul does here is he actually uses the philosophy of, that the, especially the Stoics ascribe to, against themselves. Now, Paul was a very learned man. He didn't know, just know the law and the Old Testament inside out. He knew about Greek philosophy. He's already quoted, um, well, we know from Titus he quoted Epimenides. And he quotes another couple of philosophers here in verses 28 and 20, uh, 27 and 28. So verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And what he says in the next verse is your own philosophers actually tell, tell us this. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So where is Paul quoting from there, where he says, for we indeed are his offspring? And he's actually quoting from uh, this man here, Aratus. And uh, this is a translation of the poem that, that Paul was, was quoting from. And you can see it's a poem to do with Zeus. This was the chief god of the Stoic philosophy. 
they venerated Zeus above all gods. And, and what the Apostle Paul is doing is saying, well, back in your very culture, you recognize the sovereignty of Zeus. And I'm going to tell you, there is a sovereign creator. So, if we just read this from Zeus, let us begin. Him, to, him do we mortals never leave unnamed. Full of Zeus are all the streets and all the marketplaces of men. Full is the sea and the, the havens thereof. Always we have, all, we have need of Zeus, for we are also his offspring. And he in his kindness unto men gives favorable signs and wakens the people to work. And so on. You can read through that. It is talking about the fact that according to ancient Stoic philosophy, because Aratus was a Stoic philosopher, they regarded Zeus as the sovereign creator and sustainer of mankind. So even you Stoics actually believe this philosophy of one sovereign Lord of the universe. Now, also we have at the beginning of verse 28, another quotation from the, the philosophers, where it says, in him we live and move and have our being. Now, there's a divided opinion as to exactly the source of this. It probably actually comes from two men, one of whom is this man Cleanthes, in his hymn again to Zeus. Cleanthes was another Stoic philosopher. Most glorious of the immortals, invoked by many names, even all-powerful Zeus. So they regarded Zeus as uh, sovereign. The first cause of nature who rules all things with law. Hail, it is right for mortals to call upon you, since from you we have our being. We whose lot it is to be in God's image, we alone of all mortal creatures that live and move upon the earth. So it's kind of interesting that the Apostle Paul is establishing some common ground. They don't have a Jewish background, but he's saying in your cultural history, you actually recognize the importance of an all-powerful sovereign creator in whom we live and move and have our being. And what effectively he's saying to the Stoics is, you're actually getting away from that philosophy by having all these, these small gods. And uh, that phrase, actually, in whom we live and move and have our being, also has another um, origin, as we'll see in a moment. But just to, to show you that this was actually Paul re referring to ancient Stoic philosophy. They'd gone away from their philosophy. Uh, Aratus, Cleanthes, were actually direct disciples of the Stoic founder himself, Zeno. So this is what they did believe in ancient times. And you Stoics, you're going away from this idea of the sovereignty of your God. As I said, uh, that phrase, live and move and have our being, probably has another origin too. And uh, this is actually Epimenides. A grave has been fashioned for you, a holy and high one. The lion Cretans are all time lies, evil beasts, idle bellies, which is what Paul quotes in Titus. But look what he goes on to say. But thou diest not for to eternity thou livest and standest, for in thee we live and move and have our being. And Epimenides himself was a priest of Zeus. So kind of interesting the way that Paul goes about uh, establishing this common ground to teach them about the importance of the sovereignty of a creator. 
And of course, he's going to get onto the fact that that creator is the, the God of the Jewish people and not your Zeus. And we've seen before in Deuteronomy chapter 32 the importance of the sovereignty of Yahweh. So even your own pagan poets, Paul says, recognize the sovereignty of God. And so Paul then brings his thoughts to a conclusion here with his exhortation. Verse 29 of Acts 17. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So he tackles the foolishness of idols head on. And so in verse 30, he says, the times of this ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. God is not just the God of the Jews. He's sovereign over all nations. Because, verse 31, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So indeed, he does preach Jesus and the resurrection. He brings this philosophy of the sovereignty of Yahweh round now to the gospel record and Jesus and the resurrection. And I believe the Apostle Paul is uh, thinking of another Old Testament passage here where he says he will judge the world in righteousness. If you just want to turn over to Psalm 96. Psalm 96 is, uh, I believe, where Paul is, is thinking of here. We had a look at this earlier on in the week. And Paul, to a, to a certain extent, is, is fulfilling the spirit of this psalm in his speech. Verse 1, O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, which is exactly what Paul is trying to do. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Remember that word uh, desdemonesteros, the fear of the gods? Well, Yahweh is to be feared above all gods. Verse 5, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And then in verse 13, before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world in righteousness. So that's, I believe, where Paul is, is thinking of, and verse 5 is the key. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So again, we can see the importance when we're preaching the gospel record, uh, the gospel message to those who have a superstitious background, whether it's um, from a Christian point of view or from a, a very pagan point of view. The bottom line is to establish the sovereignty of Yahweh. And then you can put away those strange gods and those strange ideas and fear the one true God. And there's another important theological point, I think, for all of us that comes from Paul's speech. Let's just come back to this very 
primitive pagan viewpoint of how the world runs itself. So the pagans, as we saw earlier in the week, would look at things like harvests and volcanoes and rain, and they imagined that there were gods that were involved in each of these things. So they had their pagan gods, the god of the harvest, the god of the volcano, and so on. And they had their pagan rituals to invoke those, those gods and to exercise some sort of control in their lives. Reducing the, the, the power of those gods by being able to control them using their rituals. And we can do similar things today in our philosophy of God. We can reduce the sovereign ruler of all things down to a pagan god who's involved here and involved here in, in this, this sort of way. And uh, this is called the God of the Gaps. So have a look at this quote from this uh, theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer. How wrong it is to use God as a stopgap for the incompleteness of our knowledge. If, in fact, the frontiers of knowledge are being pushed further and further back, and that is bound to be the case, then God is being pushed back with them and is therefore continually in retreat. We are to find God in what we know, not in what we don't know. So there is a philosophy, and you can find it in the Christian world, and it can creep into Christadelphia too, where we reduce God from being sovereign over all things, and we try to find God in the gaps in our knowledge. So if you can't explain something in nature, well, God did it by, by magic. But then when the scientist find out, finds out how that happened, then God is pushed away. And so what this very wise theologian says is, we ought to find God in what we do know, not in what we don't know. So I hope you can, you can figure that out in your mind, what, exactly what uh, he's saying there. We ought to see God as sovereign over all things. He created the laws of the universe. He created all things. And that really is the answer to all superstition and all idolatry, the supreme sovereignty of Yahweh, our God.